Mark. It's noon on Wednesday, and that means it's time for our podcast from our humble little makeshift basement studio here uh, in Lutheran Church of Hope below the chapel, if you're wondering. That's where we are. And... <laughs> I am blessed to be surrounded by three strong women today. Uh, Emily is on vacation, much deserved vacation, my co-host, and so pinch hitting for Emily's my wife, Sally. Hello, Sally. Hi, happy to be here today. I'm glad you're here. It's kind of like uh, the old, this is going to only be a certain segment of, of of our demographic who listens, but it's like Regis and Kelly Lee, Kathy Lee, Kelly Lee, Kelly, Regis. Yes. Kathy Lee. Kathy Lee, back when, <laughs> when Kathy Lee couldn't host or co-host, Joy, Regis's wife, yes. would come on, right, yes. and, and serve as the co-host. So <laughs> so you are kind of joy-filled and all that good stuff. Yeah. Well, thanks. Well, I'm happy to be here. So thanks for having me. glad you're here. And we have two wonderful <laughs> pastor guests, too, on our panel. Yes, we do. For the very first time, we have Haley Shepherd. She's our Hope Ames pastoral intern. So yes. welcome. Thank you. So glad to be here. So happy you're here. And our returning guest, one of our all-time favorites, Pastor Caroline <laughs> Banky-Becker. Oh, it's good to be back. <laughs> Yay. Welcome to you both. Caroline uh, has been on our staff for a long time. Uh, and so a lot of you are familiar with Caroline. Unless you're new to the podcast, meet Caroline. Uh, Haley is making her debut on the podcast and is a pastoral intern, as Sally said, up at our campus in Ames, does college ministry there, does the whole campus ministry there, does outreach, is kind of right in your lane, right, yes, Haley? Yes, absolutely. And now graduating from seminary, so uh, ready to take that really exciting <laughs> step out into the world of yep. ordained pastoral ministry, right? Yes, taking that next step out and seeing what God has in store for me and hopefully taking a call here soon, hoping for September is the plan, but you know, plans always change. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as God would have it. <laughs> yep, absolutely. It turns out God's full of surprises, 100%. as we were talking about just before we came on the air, but we'll maybe get into that as we go. But we've got a lot of really good ground to cover mm-hmm. biblically uh, this week. We're reading through the whole Holy Bible this year as a church family. This week, we're we're really wrapping up the four Gospels, mm-hmm. uh, wrapping up the Gospel of John, John f- chapters 15 to 21. And uh, we also read a fascinating book uh, from the Old Testament, which is really part two of last week's. It's Kings. And so in our Bibles today, it's, it's broken up as first Kings and second Kings, but it's really one story. So we're going to do a little on Second Kings, and we're going to do a lot on the Gospel of John. And with a little help from Ted Lasso, we've got some questions coming from you. Thanks for Why asking. Why don't we just jump right in? Anybody got any questions? Okay, here oh, we go. Yeah, no, what is coming. the role of faithful prophets like Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings? And what relevance do Old Testament prophets have for us today? Pastor Caroline? Oh, first of all, I think we have to talk about what prophets actually are, especially biblical prophets, because sometimes people think that prophets are, are people who tell the future. But biblically, prophets are people who call the the people, the nation of Israel, back. In other words, instead of foretelling the future, they are forthtelling what the past is and calling the people back to the covenant. They're calling people back to God and saying, we have this covenant with God. We have this contract. We have this this way of being in relationship with God. And we're to follow the Ten Commandments, these sorts of things. And if we do, then we'll be happy in the land. And if we don't, there are some significant consequences. So what the prophets are saying is, hey, look at your behavior. Um, we are not following the covenant. So right. come back to way, the way we're supposed to be in a relationship with God. And so what they're doing is they're saying, come back to to the, the relationship that we're supposed to have. So... What we're seeing, especially in First and Second Kings, is what is working out from what we saw with Saul and Samuel. Remember, way back in First First Samuel, the first king was was anointed. Samuel anointed Saul, right. and that set up the clash between kings and prophets. Who speaks for God? Who has the power? Who is subordinate? Who gets to make the decisions? And all throughout 1st and 2nd Kings, we have this this working out. We've got the prophets who are are trying to get the kings back into line with what God has for them. So Elijah and Elisha are specifically talking to the kings and saying, "Guys, we are way out of bounds, and if we don't come back to the covenant, bad things are going to happen. And as we read through the rest of 2 Kings the rest of this week, we're going to find out that bad things definitely do happen, which 
It's exactly the same today. Yeah. <laughs> it is, which actually a question came in just before the podcast opened. Sally, do you have that one uh, on Second Kings yes, and do. its relevance for today? Yes. How do we today compare to the kings from the Old Testament that turn their back on God? I think it's really important that uh, Christians maintain that prophetic voice that you're talking about, Carolina. I think it's really important that we are faithful to that, that we don't shy away from it. I think it's also really important that we don't make it up, that we don't say, thus saith the Lord, when it's really just my personal opinion, when it's really just my, that we don't speak on behalf of God, that we have a little humility there as churches, Christians, uh, pastors, preachers, teachers of the Bible, that we don't step into that role unless God has really called us into that role and not... Not everybody's called to be a prophet. We yeah. learn about this throughout scripture. It's one of the spiritual gifts, prophecy, but not everybody has this gift any more than anybody has, than everybody has any spiritual gift. Mm-hmm. It, it makes the body of Christ, it makes the church stronger that we all have these different gifts. But prophets, as you said so well, Caroline, they are covenant watchdogs. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they're the people who say, okay, God made this, establish this relationship with you. And instead of just relying on uh, kings and worldly leaders, uh, government officials to tell us what that means, God's going to send people with a very specific word and a very specific voice sometimes to say, actually, uh, do more of this, do way less of that, and completely repent of of this over here Mm -hmm. and and turn around. And if you don't, and we read about this, as you're alluding to in 2 Kings, if you don't, everything's going to fall apart. Um, It matters. I mean, it matters what we do individually, but faith in this walk with God is also something we do corporately. It's something we do as nations. It's something we do together in community. It matters what we do. It matters the decisions that we make. So the church has a responsibility to be a prophetic voice into the world today, but it also has a responsibility not to just say, well, this is what I think. So therefore, this is what God thinks. Yeah. And and the nice thing is, 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 we have been relieved of the burden of deciding what the way the relationship is supposed to, to work. Yes. Because it's outlined very clearly in God's word. Yeah. Um, you, you read through the prophets and they're saying, you know, you have a problem with the rich getting richer and yeah. the poor getting poorer. The justice system is, is a problem. You're, all of these things is like, are we reading the newspaper today or are we reading First and Second Kings? <laughs> right. And so yeah. that's the connection between miracle working prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Jesus Christ, who, who certainly had the ability to do miracles as well. But it's also, man, their stories are fun. I mean, Elijah with the, with the, with the you know, false idols of Baal and let's have a showdown, you know, mm-hmm. let's, have a, let's have a contest here to see whose God really is real. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, whose God has any power to, to do something here. Um, these stories are great. I mean, they're, they're colorful, they're fascinating, they're interesting. But Elijah and Elisha are also kind of on their own, you know, mm-hmm. because when you speak God's word, not mm-hmm. everybody in the world, if the world's upside down, like mm-hmm. you said, if, it's, it, it, if it, there's injustice every, at every turn, my goodness, we A, need the prophetic voices to point us back to God and point us back to the covenant. And B, the world's not, we shouldn't expect the world to like everything that we say. <laughs> I don't like everything I say. I, I'm not entirely comfortable with everything I say, but I have a responsibility to share it. And, uh, you know, sometimes people will hear that as saying, well, that's why the church should be more political and, and, and get right out there. Actually, that's not what Elijah and Elisha did. They were faithful. They're faithful to what God's word is saying, not faithful to what some worldly influenced ideology is saying. And that's really important for us. So. Absolutely. Wow, good stuff. Um, next question. What can we learn from Jesus' seventh and final I am statement in John's gospel? I am the vine, you are the branches from John fifteen five. Haley? One thing I really enjoy is chapter 14 kind of ends with this, let's be going. It's this call to mission. And then we dive into this John mm-hmm. chapter 15, where Jesus is really preparing the community of Jesus followers uh, in his, to prepare for his absence, right? And so as he's preparing them, he says in John 14, 8, I will leave you not orphaned. I am coming to you. And so we see this I am statement is linking the community of Jesus followers with Jesus identity. And it's this invitation to intimacy with Christ with this beautiful analogy of I am the vine, you 
are the branches. Um, Jesus also says, you know, I'm loved by the Father, and then I love you. I obey my Father's commands and remain in His love, and I invite you to remain in my love. And so, it's this invitation to intimacy. It's not coercive huh. or conditional. It's critical. It's vital. Um, it says that Jesus, my presence is vital to your life as branches. Branches aren't something where we can just cling to a vine and then produce life. No, we come from the vine. And so, that's really the vitality of nature of this uh, I am statement is so important. And I think we often view love as something we want versus Mm -hmm. something we need. Mm -hmm. And we see that this love that Jesus offers us is not temporary, but it's foundational. And so, how can we view that um, in light of how we operate in the world today as as Christ followers too? Oh, that's brilliant. There's some essentials. Like you said, love isn't just something we want, it's something we need. And we're talking about God's love. And so, it's this grace-based love, the word agape in the Greek. There's, there's, some, there's some really fascinating, you know, undercurrents going on, subplots, I think, in this, this I am statement. Jesus makes these seven I am statements that identify himself. It's also fascinating to notice that if you're really paying attention and counting, Jesus makes seven just I am statements alone, not, you know, I, not I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, uh, I'm the way, the truth, and life, those seven I am statements. But then there's seven more where he just calls himself I am. That this this is who I am. He's identifying as 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 the ego a me in the Greek, which is who God is. Once upon a time, love is essential. God is love. We'll read about that later in First John. This is John. So that's for, <laughs> and there's a Johannine community here, out of which a lot of biblical scholars say John comes out of that community. The Johannine epistles, uh, the three Johns, first, second, and third John, and then the book of revelation too. And so there are some themes there. There's a rhythm to these stories that come out and, and Jesus saying, as you said, Haley, so well, that love is essential. There's something else going on here. So is the word of God. Look at chapter 15, verse seven. If you abide in me, my word remains in you. And this word Produces, and I'm, I'm going to push this just a little, and I'm not suggesting this is what John was saying, but we were going to read about the fruit of the Spirit later in Galatians 5.22. Well, what's the first three? Love, which as you mm-hmm. noted, Haley, is essential, not just wanted, but needed. It's the basis upon which our whole relationship with God is based. It's the basis for the cross. It's, it's the whole move of God. It's, it's why the prophets in the Old Testament mm-hmm. speak. It's God loves us enough not to just leave us alone, but call us to repentance. So, there's love all throughout here. It's, it remain in my love. If you abide in me, you remain in my love. But then he makes this move in chapter 15, verse 11, as he's saying, I'm, I'm, the, vi- I'm the vine and you're the branches. He says, I've told you these things so that you'll be filled with my joy. So, my word produces love, joy, and then eventually we're going to get at the end of chapter 16, peace. It's Again, I might be pushing this just a little bit, but at a minimum, there are, uh, there's, there's a synthesis of themes going on here. When you follow Jesus, he is going to produce this stuff in you. If you abide, if you don't abide in him, where are you going to find the love? I mean, a love that lasts. If you don't abide in him, where's the joy going to be produced? If you don't abide in him, how are you going to find that peace that passes all human understanding? So, I just found that fascinating. I like this because the the vine and the branches, when Jesus is talking about that, this is really about identity. Uh-huh. We find our identity in Christ. Mm-hmm. And what what's fascinating, when you go all the way back to Genesis 3, what is Genesis 3 really about? The fall, sin coming mm-hmm. into the world. Mm-hmm. It's, it's humans wanted to define our own identity ourselves. Mm-hmm. And now Jesus is saying, actually, that's the wrong way to do it. The way to, to identify yourself, where you get your identity, is not choosing it yourself or trying to make it up. It's in me. Right. And, and that's how we have our identity. And that's when we have that kind of identity, that's when fruit is produced. Right. Yeah. So, staying connected to the vine, obviously, is the mm-hmm. key here. And, and I think... I believe one of the best ways we can do that is doing what we're doing as a church this year. Mm-hmm. Abide in me, and then you'll know my word. You'll have this word, and that word we know from John 8, you know, that word leads to the truth. The truth sets you free. When my word remains in you, here comes your identity. Mm-hmm. Now, you're going to figure out who you are because you're connected to me. Mm-hmm. And the, the beautiful irony of all that is Jesus is also self-identifying in these I am statements. He's saying, this is who I am, and so therefore, this is who you are. Love that. Mm-hmm. 
And I am curious too, we also see in the next couple chapters of the hate that comes, like in the Gospel of John, the word hate is used more than any time, any other Bible or any other yeah. book of the Bible. And so yeah. we see that the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. And so mm-hmm. we see this this hate, but what's interesting is hate is never described as a Jesus response mm-hmm. or a response from the Jesus community to the world. Instead, it's the world attacking and coming at Christ. And I think sometimes as churches, we use this as like, if the world hates us, that's a good thing. And we then become these <laughs> martyrs and then it just causes chaos right. um, and then we get this reputation of you know we're, we're churches that judge and mm-hmm. there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and so um, what are your what are your thoughts about that other side of the coin of what we do with this hate is it something we should embrace and project as something that <laughs> should be reputable or yeah. that love that Jesus calls us to he does and he's he's going to actually get to that in our next question so let's that's a great transition in so let's let's dive in because Jesus is even going to say the world's going to hate you so what yeah. do you do with that okay what does Jesus tell his disciples in John 16 during his farewell address about keeping the faith in challenging times well, if you add 16 and 17, and if you put those together, as, as, and you just kind of follow Jesus all the way through here, this is his farewell discourse or farewell address to his disciples. Uh, he's still in the upper room, uh, almost certainly, you know, starting from uh, the Last Supper, and now he's teaching. He's saying, this is who you are. And Haley, to your point, among other things, he says, you know, the world's going to hate you. It, it's going to be tough. And, okay, I've been... <laughs> I've been following Jesus as far as as long as I can remember, you know, the better part of two generations of life. I've been pastoring for a generation here at Hope. So, you know, you learn a few things along the way just experientially, and that's sometimes one of the most wonderful teachers is just what is it really like to be in ministry? What, what and doing it for a whole generation in the same community? Well, sometimes you aren't liked. Uh, sometimes you're liked too much. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of my college basketball coach. He said, you are your, your first team meeting we ever had my first year of college. He sits down with all the, all the guys on the team and he says, look, you're on the basketball team in a, in, in a college. That means you're going to get way more praise than you deserve and you're going to get way more criticism than you deserve because you're doing things publicly. You're doing things out in front of people and the public likes to have opinions, you know, about these things. Okay, well, that just comes with the territory. That That's part of it. But I also think, Haley, you're alluding to something that's really where Jesus is going, which is to say, yeah, you will, but mm-hmm. it's not just you're a martyr so go out there and get hated and that'll prove how faithful you are. Jesus is really clear in saying, yeah, in this world, you're gonna have a lot of trouble, but John 16, 33, take heart. I've overcome the world. Uh, he also said, I'm going to 16, 20, I'm going to turn your sadness into joy. I, I, I'm going to flip the script for you. I'm, I'm going to move things around. And then, uh, Sally, you and I were talking about this morning, how much, how much Jesus emphasizes, how much God the Father loves you. So we get back to the essential nature of love again. Well, if the creator of the universe loves me and he's flipping the script and I know how the story ends, and I do, you know, Jesus wins. And if I belong to Jesus, how bad is it? Really? I mean, Mm -hmm. sure, it's not easy and and Christians get persecuted. Yes, we do. I I, I know how that feels. I I get that. And sometimes we get criticized for good reasons because we're off. But other times we get criticized because we're being faithful, because we're saying this is actually what God's word says, and it doesn't fit mm-hmm. with what you want it to say. And then that kind of gets to what I've been preaching about the last few weeks. Um, do you want comfortable Jesus yeah. or do you want real Jesus? Because real Jesus is not comfortable all the time. Mm-hmm. He, he will ultimately take you there. He will give you a peace, a joy, a love, an eternity, uh, a grace like you can't get anywhere else. But... Uh, real Jesus is is going to ruffle our feathers. He's going to push our buttons. He's going to challenge us, um, and, and he's going to move us. Is, is that kind of where you were heading with yes. that? Yes, yeah. and and even there's a lot, even talking about suffering, right? Mm-hmm. And the suffering and sorrow. Um, grief that people experience too. Uh, Jesus says, like, I won't abandon you. Don't abandon your faith. And so, when we're talking about these challenges in life too, just not, not just, you know, as Christians being persecuted, but then just as being human beings, suffering comes with the human experience, right? Yeah. It's inevitable. It's not something that's just possible. It's probable. And so, what do we do then in those challenging times as well as not only persecution, but then just the suffering and sorrow that happens um, yeah. with being human, right? Yep. And so, Jesus is preparing his disciples too in this time of 
yeah, you're, you're going to be scattered and you're going to be scared. But guess what? You can be secure because of me, because I'm, I'm the hope, I'm the life, I'm the healing, I'm the forgiveness that's, that's going to transform this world and turn this broken world right side up. And um, Jesus says, I've told you all these things that so you may have peace here on earth too. And so um, also sharing that peace with one another in Christian community, because suffering is something that we naturally want to do on our own. You know, it's something where we want to step back and just isolate, uh, but God calls us into suffering together in one community too. And so that's just another challenge I think that people face too in, in, in life in general. It is, absolutely. And I think it's interesting. This is, it's as though Jesus knows that our tendency is to assume that we are victims. Mm. Right. And Jesus says, but take heart, I've conquered. So we are not victims. No regardless of the circumstances, we are actually victors. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's reminding us of, of recognize who you really are and what I've done for you. So don't, 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 don't make victimhood your default mode because that's not who you are. You're not a victim. Amen. Okay. So mm-hmm. here's a perfect example of how we're better together. And just having this conversation here at this table, and hopefully you guys feel like you've got a chair here, you know, pull, pull right in and, and, and tune in and listen in. We learn more. We, we gain from each other. Uh, we, 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 we add depth and color to what we understand. Because if I'm just going to do this solo, and I'm just going to read through, and I'm going to come to my own conclusions, uh, I'm missing something. We were made to do this. We're made to do life, church, community, but also Bible reading in community uh, together. And we are better together. I'm, I, I really appreciate this part of the conversation. I think it's really hopeful for, for people who are suffering. As you talked about, Haley. So if that's you, if, if you're either like, uh, okay, great, the story ends well, but I'm crushed right now. I, I'm really up against it. Well, Jesus said it would be like that. There, there would be times like that in this upside down world. But as you said, Caroline, the victim thing is really overrated biblically. Mm-hmm. Forget all the pop culture language we use for that. I'm talking about biblically. If we think if, if we play the game of thinking, well, I get more attention when I'm really suffering, when I'm hurting, when I'm broken, the problem with that trend mm-hmm. is not the social aspect of it. I'm, I'm not really worried about that so much. I'm worried about it theologically. I'm worried about it in terms of the health of people's faith, spiritually, their spiritual health, is it ignores the reality that our God wins. There's a victory coming. There's a triumph. There's a conquering of enemies we can't defeat. This is going to end extremely well, and that not just gives me hope for the future, that puts my suffering in perspective, because suddenly I see it for what it is, temporary. Mm. It is not going to, what, what you're up against right now, whatever it is, I'm not trying to minimize it, I'm telling you it isn't going to last, and it isn't going to last for any of us here either. What good news. I mean, what, what, a, what a great God that, who, who loves us enough to send his son into the world to do these things, but also to teach these things. To say, this is who I am. And, and look at just briefly, John 17, which is part of this farewell discourse too. It reveals the heart of Jesus. Mm-hmm. It shows us, talk about identity before mm-hmm. Caroline. So, what, what is Jesus identifying with? Well, he says, uh, first of all, verse 11 of chapter 17, this is the prayer he prays to his father in heaven before he's betrayed. He knows he's going to be betrayed. I pray that you will protect them. Well, that's good news for people who are suffering. (laughs) Even while we're suffering, we're never alone. God is with us. He will put a hedge of protection, as as we say, uh, around us when we're hurting. Verse 11 also, I pray for unity. And boy, does that theme pop up over and over again in 17. I pray that they'll be one, just as we're one, that they'll be one. So, this is a glimpse of heaven, is that we're protected, we're safe in God's house in our house that God invites us into now. we We were heirs of his kingdom. Number two, we're united. We, all the stuff that divides and where we dismiss one another. Jesus talks about the ruler of this world is the devil. Well, not he's not the ruler of heaven. And so, in that world, there's unity because we aren't just taking shots at each other to feel better about ourselves. There's joy, verse 13, and there's mission. You don't belong to the world, but you're sent into it. So, you know, we see God's heart. We see Jesus' heart. We see what matters to him. And if it matters to him, Oh, it should matter to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love how this discourse, when you, when you put 15, 16, and 17 together, I love how it flows. Yes. First, it's, here's your identity. Your identity is in Christ. Yes. Which means you aren't a vine victim. Vine and branches. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. vine and branches. You are not a victim. There right. is suffering. Right. And, and 
you can you can grow through suffering. Yes. It doesn't have to be something that absolutely knocks your your faith. It's not the end. It's not the end because I'm with you in it. You know, Psalm twenty three. I'm with you in that, and then because of that, we can be one. I love how it just flows. Identity. You are not a victim, and we're together in this together. Uh, it just is. I love how John's put this together. Great summary of of this farewell discourse. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. One thing I saw when I read that that st- stood out to me was Jesus prayed that the Father would love us as much as He loves Him, and I thought, wow, I always knew Jesus is a great guy, but that's a <laughs> whole other level. Yeah. Wow, yeah, the you know? Creator of the universe loves us. Yes, like th- like Jesus loves us to the point of death. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was fun. Good insight. <laughs> okay, next question. How is John's account of Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and, tr- and trial distinctive from the synoptic gospels? And how does this expand and deepen our view of Jesus? Come on, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> this one is a lot of fun because the synoptics, when, you, when we're talking about the uh, Holy Week, the last week, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Sunday. He's teaching, getting into trouble. And then on Thursday night, Passover night, that's when Monday, Thursday is, and then everything moves moves to the cross. For people who don't know, the synoptics so are... are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they have the same um, viewpoint of what the story is, okay? John is different because he's making a theological point here. In John's gospel, we find out that the Last Supper, that last, that last gathering of Jesus with his disciples, is not Passover. It's the day of preparation. The day of preparation in the 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 festival of Passover is the day that the lambs were sacrificed for the Passover meal. So, John is saying theologically, this is the Passover lamb. He is going to actually be die on, he's going to be dying on the day that the lambs are being killed for the Passover meal. Mm -hmm. So, behold the lamb of God who saves, you know, and then all of a sudden, John is saying, I, saw, I told you, John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God, and this is really the Lamb of God. Um, so, he just get, it's just this it theologically deep, he, he just sticks it. He just makes it stick. He does. Yeah. John is uh, portraying Jesus throughout this whole Passion Week, too, as the one who's in control. Mm-hmm. He, he is not subservient to this. He's not a victim, as we talked about earlier. Jesus knows what's going on. He knows where he's headed. He understands this is different. And more than any of, of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John really brings that out. He reminds us again and again, um, look closer and you'll see who's really running this story. You, it, it's not Pilate. It's not the chief priests. It's not the disciples. It's not the crowds even, you know, and, and, and their fickleness, you know, going from Palm Sunday, hailing him as a king to crucify him. Uh, a lot of the same crowd on, on leading up to his, his, resur- his crucifixion on Friday. There is, a, there is a real important kind of point to note there for us as Bible readers, I think, that we, if, if we aren't careful, we can read this as, oh no, what happened to Jesus? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Precisely what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And, and, and not just going to the cross, but every detail along the way. This is how it's going to be. Um, he knew Judas would betray him. He knew Peter would deny him. The other gospels pick up on that for sure too. But he's, he's not even phased by it. You, you, you can just feel it in his attitude as you read through John. He's not intimidated by the worldly powers. He's not intimidated by the temple powers, the, the, the you know, Caiaphas, the chief priest, um, Annas, n- none of them. He's not, in, and they have power. Mm-hmm. They're intimidating people yeah. in Jesus' world. He's not intimidated by Pontius Pilate, who not only has power of the Roman Empire in that region of the world, he has a reputation for being really ruthless, yeah. just not a nice guy at all. It really out for himself on, on every level. And that kind of comes out in this story too. And we can get into that a little deeper as we go. But um, I, I think that that's worth noting that all throughout John's gospel, Jesus is in charge. Um, and that's, that's always, I think, I, I'm so glad for John because it gives us that perspective. Where Matthew, Mark, and Luke emphasize the humanness of Jesus, John emphasizes the, the divine nature of Jesus. He is God. He's not just a carpenter's kid. Absolutely. Um, next question is, what do, we, what do you want our podcast listeners to notice about the fascinating dialogue between Jesus and Pilate in John 18 and 19? 
there is so much here that I'm just going to touch an ounce of what I kind of picked up in this story. And we're talking about who who's in control, right? Who's Jesus is clearly setting the pace. And we talked about that last week of Jesus is in control of this narrative and the story and what's about to happen. But what really stood out to me was the first question that Pilate asked. It says, are you king of the Jews? He asked Jesus and Jesus just replied, is this your own question or did others tell you about me? And that really stood out to me with reading it this time around is Jesus responds to this question because Jesus knows not only the heart of Pilate, but the heart of everyone surrounding him, right? Jesus is getting more than meets the surface here. It's it's about influence. You think Pilate is the man of influence is this story in this moment because he has the power here to declare life or death, but truly Jesus is the influencer in this story. And Jesus asking that question uh, really resonates with us too is, Pilate isn't this ultimate man of influence. Sometimes we think there's other influences in our life who are the ultimate influence. And oftentimes we get that wrong and we get that order of, of God putting God first so easily. And I think that's a great question we can ask ourselves even in daily life when we question God's identity, when we question God's will, when we question God's generosity, when we question God's power and purpose. We can come back to this question of, are we believing what others have told us about who God is and who we are? Hmm. Or are we trusting the source of spirit and truth? Uh, that's, Jesus. That's really great. I, it's funny how you read the same stories over and over again yeah. and different things pop up. What yeah. popped up for you, Caroline? I love how the fact that it's it's presented as Jesus is on trial before Pilate, but mm-hmm. actually Pilate is on trial oh, before Jesus. Jesus. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are you the king of the Jews? And and Jesus is essentially asking, well, what king what kind of king do you think I am? Uh, you know, Pilate asked, uh, well, what is truth? And Jesus is saying, well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, Pilate says, oh, don't you know I have power of you? And Jesus says, you have no idea <laughs> what power is. So, so it's interesting that, that from a worldly standpoint, Jesus is really up against it, but actually Pilate is up against it. And and what is he going how is he going to respond to these questions? How is he actually going to understand who he is standing in front of um the god of the entire universe? Mm-hmm. Pilate is is portrayed sympathetically and so, sometimes in the Hollywood versions of this yeah. story and I think that that's a miss. Uh he's not as sympathetic as we want him to be because people will read this and say, "Oh, well, he's he's just getting sucked into a fight he doesn't want to be in." And I think that's true politically. Mm-hmm. His his motivation here is political. Mm-hmm. His motivation is not personal. He's not like, "Oh, Jesus, I feel bad for you." That just doesn't come through as as we read this story in this text. Really, his whole thing is, "I've got a mob. I've got an angry crowd." who is really upset it's passover tomorrow uh-huh. you know we're 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 right there on the verge of of their high holy day they've come here from all over the place it's not just citizens of jerusalem but they're all they're they're here from everywhere so it's a it's a swelled crowd right it, and it's an angry crowd and they want blood they they want him crucified Pilate, politically i think his motivation is how do i get out of this yeah save face calm the crowd Mm-hmm. It's all political for him. It, mm-hmm. uh, how, how do I how do I move through this in a way? And so when he says what is truth, it's almost like a flippant remark, yeah. right? He, I don't think he's philosophically really wanting to. He doesn't wait to hear what Jesus says. Not that Jesus offers anything at that mm-hmm. point. His whole life has been truth. You know, John fourteen, I am the truth. Mm-hmm. If you want to know the truth, just look at what I've done. Uh, you know, my name is I am. Uh, you can see it by who I am and 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 what I do. But. Pilate is, um, is, is just trying to wiggle through this. He wants to stay out of it. And maybe just maybe he doesn't want to execute an innocent man too. But mm-hmm. I don't think that's his primary motivation because that doesn't fit with his historical nature. Mm-hmm. He, he murders entire groups of people when he sees them even as a potential threat to his power. He has them wiped out. He's a mob boss. He's, he's, a, he's a horrendous, dark character. In the story, and you say, "Well, so what?" I mean, go eat. You know, who cares? Why, why are we pounding on him? I think it's just important to read it for what it is, yeah. because that reveals what Jesus is up against. Now, if if Pilate is that much of a horrendous human being, the fact that Jesus stayed calm in the face of that power is all the more remarkable. That that this Jesus we follow is worth following. This Jesus we follow. For those times in our lives when we feel like we've lost control, when we feel like the world has too much power and we're going to lose, we're not going to lose. It gets back to that again. We belong to the one who stands up in the face of, I know there's a lot of people who get really anxious about how things are going politically in our world today. 
I'm probably one of them. You know, I, admittedly, it's kind of a mess. Uh, kind of. <laughs> kind of. It, it's, a, it's a mess. And it's, you know, it, we've talked about that a lot on, on at other podcasts. But let me just summarize that point in saying, okay, so where do you put your faith? Um, is it finding somebody who can do something better politically than Pilate did? Or is it finding somebody who comes in and says, I've got a kingdom for you that's bigger than any worldly kingdom, because those aren't going to last. No matter how much you appreciate and um, are patriotic toward those things, and I am, and I am appreciative of these things, uh, of being an American, for instance. But this isn't going to last. I, I hope it lasts many, 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 many more generations. I really do for my kids, grandkids, and on and on and on. Uh, neighbors, uh, church people, everybody, you know, the whole, the whole, our world needs the United States of America at its best. But this kingdom doesn't last. The kingdom of heaven, that's what, that's my favorite statement. That's what jumped out for me. My kingdom is not of this world. And when you reduce me to that, Jesus is saying, you're missing the whole point more than that, you're missing the power. Yes. You're missing the power of what it means to be a Jesus follower, which is it's going to last a lot longer than these hills you're all dying on. So let's live for something first. I'm not saying we shouldn't care about all the other things. We should. Luther was good on this in terms of two kingdoms. You know, he, he <laughs> talked about, well, there's, there's two ways to see these things. And Jesus is making it very clear here. We don't have time to get into all that today, but he's making it very clear here. The kingdom I have for you is the one you really yeah. want. It's the one that's going to last. Why do you think John highlights the sign Pilate posted on the cross, three of Jesus' last words from the cross, and precise details like no broken bones and the soldier's spear? Okay, so this is a three-part question. We're going we're gonna to hit this one. And I'll take the first part, Haley. You take the second, and Caroline, <laughs> you take the third. But it's all about the same moment for Jesus. He's, he's going to the cross and as he's nailed to the cross, they also post a sign that says, King of the Jews, um, Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus, King of the Jews. They put it in three different languages, John, make sure we notice. Um, as, as, so, in other words, Pilate's putting it up there to make sure everybody sees this. So, here's your king. This is what happens to people who, who, who the world says are, is king. Jesus didn't deny it, but he also didn't, like, say that that's what I'm really here for. Uh, I'm here to point you to the truth, he says to Pilate. So, Pilate has had it with him, mocks him, puts the sign up. The soldiers were mocking him before. How were they mocking him? Oh, look at the king of the Jews. Mm -hmm. Uh, The crowds were hailing him as king of the Jews on Palm Sunday coming in. So, here's what happens to people who come in as a threat to Rome or as a threat to the temple. Um, they get put on a throne, which is a cross, and they get a crown, which is thorns, and they get a sign that says, how's your king looking now? Pretty good, yeah. actually. And, and that's the flip. That, that's the beautiful irony of this. Is, is, it's such drama. I mean, it's, it's so good. It's, just, it's, it's the best, like, it's, it's just beautifully written from a literary perspective. All the Gospels are, but John really mm-hmm. clicks on this part. He's like, yeah, but Jesus has been in charge the whole time. And now, just as everything's complete, look at his throne. Look at his crown. Look, look at the sign we have up there to mock him. Yeah, and every single word of it is true. Mm-hmm. And it is a throne, and it is a crown, and it isn't a throne and a crown of a kingdom that's going to crumble and fall, because they all do eventually. History teaches us this. It's a throne that will last forever look closer. Who's who's winning and whose side are you on here? And where do you put your faith and trust? So, that's the first part. The second part of this question is all about his last words, Haley, on the cross. And the drama just continues. It just keeps going and it's just brilliant writing. And the three words really stand out to me because it almost seems Trinitarian in nature. There's, There's three last words and Jesus is relatively silent. You know, when you're beaten and flogged and then drug and hung on a cross, you would probably be pretty silent too. Um, and so, these words really stand out against that contrast of silence and now Jesus is speaking. And uh, he says in John nineteen twenty eight, woman, here is your son. And he says to the disciple, here is your mother. Yeah. And so, we first see what Jesus is bringing to attention, which is relationship. And we see time and time again, as Jesus describes to his disciples, the relationship of son to father, 
And now I'm showing you what relationship is going to look like between all of you. And I'm going to be um, that mediator that's going to bring those relationships into perfect unity. And then we dive into, oh, this is going to go fast. There could be whole sermons on this, but Jesus says, I am thirsty. Jesus is expressing this need and this need is going to be fulfilled. And so we get to, as Jesus followers, get to express needs and, and Jesus is going to be that source for us. We're di- diving right back to Jesus is the vine, where are the branches. Um, and then Jesus is this culmination, this, this uh, it is finished, this promise fulfilled that has been led for thousands of years and now coming to culmination and it's this promise fulfilled and it's guaranteed and we get to see uh, Jesus be this this embodiment of this fulfillment and this revelation of God's love to the world on the cross and so that's a short little summary and so I know there's a couple more details about the precise details of Jesus on the cross that you're going to dive into as a brilliant doctor. <laughs> if you've got wisdom for us. Yeah. What's with the spear and it all being uh, finished in that I way? Just, I just love this because you look at this and you think this is this is a throwaway verse. And what I'm talking mm. about is verse uh, 34. Uh, uh, Soldier pierced his side, and at once blood, or, blood and water came out. Um, you think about that, and you say, well, interesting detail. But what's interesting about this, at this time in history, medical science did not know that blood was composed of serum, which looks like water, it's kind of straw-colored, and cells, red <laughs> blood cells. So... When somebody is dead, two things are happening here. Number one, when your blood is not circulating, it's clotting. And when it clots, the blood cells come out as the blood clot. And then there's the serum. So, Hmm. if somebody's dead, you're going to have blood and water. Hmm. Okay, so we know he's dead. Because that's, you know, what, did he really die or did he just faint? Yeah, all the the so-called conspiracies that he didn't really die. Yeah, yeah. it's like, no, actually, that's dead. And the other thing, when you understand what is happening from a physiological standpoint, what is happening to your body during crucifixion, one of the things that's going to happen is there's going to be fluid built up around your heart, the sac around the heart, as well as the sac around the lungs. Hmm. When the the um, uh, soldiers pierces that, you're going to get, because more than likely, because of the anatomy, I won't go into it, you're going to get, first, when the spear goes through, you're going to get the fluid around the heart and the lungs, and then you're going to get the blood from the heart being pierced. So, to me, this is like, he's dead. I mean, he's dead. And John would not have known that. The doctors at that time didn't know that. That that, That understanding is only about 120, 150 years old. So, it sounds like a throwaway verse, but it's absolute evidence how Jesus fascinating that that, wow. that understanding is only 150 years old or so, yeah. and yet God has John put it in there. It, this is God's word. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost for the skeptics of our day to say, yeah, well, who knows what that meant for John's first century readers because they didn't have that medical understanding that we do today. Mm-hmm. But now with the medical understanding we have today, it's, it's a living word, isn't it? Oh, it <laughs> is. Very. It is. Okay, um, what stood out for you this time around as you read the familiar stories of Jesus' resurrection in John 20? I would love to start off with this. Um, One thing that I really picked up on was our two readings, just coincidentally, thank you, Holy Spirit, actually match up pretty well. So, if we're reading 2 Kings chapter 2, which is what we've been reading, uh, we see Elijah and Elisha, and we see their story of these prophets. And then we see this transfer of power with Elijah being taken up into heaven. Uh, But we see when that happens, uh, we see that Elijah leaves behind, or Elijah, excuse me, they're so close. (laughs) (laughs) So, Elijah leaves behind a mantle a cloak which has fallen after he's been taken up after we see these chariots of fire and there's this big dramatic scene and it's glorious and he leaves behind this cloak which may seem not significant may just seem weird okay why would his his clothes fell off as he left Uh, uh, but we see that also in the gospel of john in chapter 20 uh, we see that post-resurrect or post-resurrection we see that jesus's cloak is now left in the tomb and we get to draw these beautiful parallels um, where elijah um, after he ascends into heaven elisha then takes this cloak he cries out he's he's grieving Hmm. uh, similarly to possibly the way the disciples were grieving jesus and he slams this cloak uh, on the river and it and it separates and it almost represents what we see in Exodus. We see Moses parting the Red Sea. And so, we see these symbolisms of freedom in the same way that Jesus' cloak is left. There's now this imagery that those followers maybe were thinking about is now we get to walk through the same path towards freedom as well. And Jesus is laying that path down for us. Wow. That's really cool. That is cool. What did you see? 
Caroline. Uh, the verse that stuck out to me is is Jesus appears to his disciples the very first time he appears, and um, he comes among them, peace be with you, and then he says, and then the gospel writer says, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples rejoiced. Yeah. Then, later on, Thomas asked to see hands and side, and it, all of a sudden it hit me, Thomas wasn't there. And we're, you know, we give him, you know, you didn't have enough faith, you know, kind of doubting Thomas. Sure, right. Mm-hmm. But the original disciples didn't believe be- uh-uh. until they saw yeah. the evidence. So yeah. it wasn't just Thomas who wanted right. the evidence. Peter, too, for Peter sure. Too. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I have always identified more with Thomas than anybody else yeah. because yeah. I, I want the evidence. I want the data. Sure. I want to see. Yeah. And I realized, wait a minute. So did they. (laughs) John apparently is the only one, and we know who wrote this gospel. Uh, So, again, he was the faster one. He beat Peter to the two. And and the one that Jesus loved the most. Most, You're going to keep it humble, Uh though, right? Yeah, 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 all the way through. (laughs) Although, maybe he was, you know, it's in the Bible. So, uh, let's go with that. But, uh, so, you know, in so much of the world, seeing is believing. Mm -hmm. In scripture, believing is seeing. Too though, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's not like you have to throw one out in order to get the other. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with seeing to believe, but you'd be more blessed, Jesus uh-huh. says to Thomas and to us, if you could um, believe it without needing to see it. It doesn't mean we shouldn't seek to see it. It just means faith is ultimately, you know, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We'll read about later in Hebrews. So, what do we see? You know, you put together what you just laid out there, Caroline, of what a what a revelation that we could easily miss that the disciples, not just Thomas, but have some issues, have some doubts. They're, they're not ready yet to say he's risen. They will. Mm-hmm. But it really helps that they saw him risen. Haley, you did a, just a masterful job of connecting Second Kings, Elisha, Elisha, the cloak, and Jesus, and, and that whole thing. So, how do we see that? Well, we see that by getting into the Word. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you folks, again, the deeper you get into this Bible, <laughs> the deeper you get into God's Word, the more it will strengthen your faith, mm-hmm. the more it will draw you into relationship with God, who is the King of all kings, who is the one who is on the throne that lasts, who is the one who wears the crown that isn't ever going to fade, as opposed to all the other alternatives that are out there. So, there's one other thing here, and so we'll, we'll combine the next question in with this that really stood out for me, which is that number. Mm-hmm. I like numbers. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I will admit right off the front of this that nobody knows for sure because it because we don't know, but there's John doesn't waste ink. As you said, Carly, he's not going to put this detail in there, the, the blood in the water on the last question, unless God wants to use it for something. Uh, he's not wasting ink on 153. He could have just said a lot of fish. Risen Jesus, uh, John 21, disciples are in the boat. They're not catching anything. He says, throw your net the other side. They catch so many fish, they can barely haul it in. And then it says there's 153 of those fish. Well, what does that mean? Okay, math people. Uh, 17. If you do a triangle uh, uh, and do three sides and put dots, 17 equal dots apart from each other on one side, the other side, the other side, and then you fill in those dots, specifically inside of that, you get to 153. What's the big deal about 17? There's always something in biblical numbers, especially when we realize Johannine community also wrote Revelation. And so, out of this, numbers, come on, they're all over Revelation. And so, here, the 153 if it's 17, that's 10 and 7, 10 commandments, the law, 7. How many disciples are in this story in John 21? There's only 7 here. It doesn't mean that there aren't more. We know Judas is out, but 7 are noted at the beginning of John 21. There's also the 7 gifts of the Spirit, fruits of the Spirit. We could go on and on, but again, who knows for sure? At the time of this writing, zoologists believed, so there's geometry, and then there's zoology. Zoologists believe that there were 153 species of fish. So, if we're fishing for people, uh, which Jesus calls us to do, we're fishing for all the fish in the sea, for all the people in all nations. One more, it gets even better. There's this thing called gematria, pronounce it how you want, which is the study of numbers and putting numerical values on ancient Hebrew words. And so, if you do that with Ezekiel 47.10, this vision of the living water coming out of the temple and going uh, along the rivers and bringing life to dead things. It goes into the Dead Sea and creates flowers and trees and life and fish, and suddenly dead stuff comes to life. It's, it's an, uh, certainly 
uh, uh, prophecy about the resurrection, among other things. And, and Jesus stands up in John 7, halfway through John's gospel, and says, if you're thirsty and you're looking for this living water, this prophecy to be fulfilled, I'm it. Mm-hmm. Uh, come to me and drink. So now it says there are fishermen on both sides of this river in Ezekiel 47 in this prophecy. On one side is the Engedi, on the other side is the Enegleam. The biblical number in Hebrew for Engedi is 17. The mm. biblical number for Enegleam in uh, Hebrew is 153. You can't make this stuff up. So it's, a, it's the resurrection. This is the water. This is the life. This is the fulfillment. This is all the fish in the sea. This is the perfect number. It, it all comes together. And so 153 fish in the net. Not by accident. Uh, We don't know for sure exactly what, but we know something's going on here, and it's goosebump cool. Yeah. Yeah. Last question. Okay. What, if anything, does the conversation between Jesus and Peter in John 21 have to do with us and the 21st century church? This is so cool because, because Peter has denied Jesus three times. And Jesus asked Peter then, do you love me three times? So, he's reinstating Peter after he fell away. God wants to reinstate us every time that we fall away. What's also interesting is when you actually look at the Greek, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Agape love, servant love, serving love. He, and Peter replies, "No, yes, Jesus, you know I love you, friendship, filio. So, and so Jesus asked agape first time, agape the second time. And when Peter can only answer filio, I want to be your friend, your brother. Jesus, the third time, uses the word filio. He says, I'm going to come to where you are, recognizing that agape love is so difficult. I'm going to come to where you are, and I'm going to bring you along with me. So, it's, 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 I want to restore you. I want to meet you where you are, and then I'm going to continue to move you with me. The other thing I like about this, um, and this is just silly, but we talk a lot in church about closing the back door. People mm-hmm. come, mm-hmm. they're here for a while, and then, yeah, they'll go somewhere else. And there are, we've heard other pastors say, you know, don't go stealing my sheep mm-hmm. kind of deal. I've always, growing up with the farm, I'm thinking, you know, your sheep are going because you don't have very good pasture. Maybe you should, you should improve your pasture. It's good to have a farmer and on then, the And then, and then yeah. you know, you're not losing your sheep. So it's, 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 you have to care for the people that I have given you. And don't worry about the ones, you know, make sure that what you're giving them is the best feed that they can possibly have. Love them, feed them, take care of them. Mm-hmm. My dad always was fond of saying there's two kinds of pastors. There's two kinds of people, people who love people and people who don't. Mm-hmm. And God can do a lot more with people who love people. Yeah. And, and it starts there. It gets back to where we were when we were talking about abiding in Jesus. It starts mm-hmm. with the essential nature of love. Haley, you brought that up. Um, this this story of Peter's restoration is is really powerful, it, and it leads to mission. Like like you say, it it leads. Peter's being restored for the sake of the relationship between Jesus and Peter, but he's also being restored for the sake of mission. There's one more thing going on here that's just too much fun not to mention. There's a charcoal fire. And so, uh, going on, and as Jesus and Peter are about to be restored, that's in the text. The last time there's a charcoal fire, and the only other time in all of the Gospels that a charcoal fire appears, the only other time is when Peter denies him. So, he denies him three times. He's restored three times. Do you love me three times? He is restored, though, not just for the sake of, hey, Peter, nice comeback. Hey, Peter, lead my church. You know, feed my sheep. Love. Take care. Um, carry out the mission. How do we carry out the mission? How do you carry out the mission, uh, the podcast listeners of the Church of Jesus Christ? You love people. Um, you, you take care of them. You feed them. But it starts with love. What a great conversation. Thanks, you guys. Um, I wish we could say more, but we're out of time. And thank you. We'll see you at church this weekend. uh, And we'll see you on the podcast again next. Keep reading. It just keeps getting better. Thanks for joining us today. Please make sure to like and subscribe on your favorite platform. And we'll see you next time.